System implementations don't fail because the tech doesn't work. We can always get the tech to work. They fail because the business processes in the business doesn't adapt to whatever is going on. And they continue to try to do things the old way on their new systems. Well, hey guys, it's Jeff Diverter, the host of Cloud Talk. Boy, wasn't that quote just the truth? That when doing a large system integration, if you don't change your processes and the way that people work together, you're destined for failure. We've heard that time and time again on this program. You're going to hear it a lot again today as I visit with Scott Strickland. Now, Scott is the CIO for Wyndham Hotels and Resorts, and they've gone through a massive transformation over the past several years, not just in moving out to utilizing cloud-based technology. And there's even a recent press release about their commitment to the AWS platform, but also in analyzing every aspect of how they serve their guests. And in today's episode, you're going to hear a little bit of Scott's own story as he came to be the CIO for Wyndham Hotels and Resorts, but also the transformation that they've undergone under his leadership. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking the sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Diverter. So um, what I thought we might do to get started is, is as we were mentioning before, uh, before we started recording, is let's just talk a little bit about your history, because I think that that is really foundational to, you know, what you guys have been accomplishing and the amount of, of stuff that you are accomplishing right now. You and the team over at uh, Wyndham is, is nothing short of amazing. So it's like your IT career started back in 1991, or at least that's what that's what I was able to figure out over at Accenture, a, a bold systems analyst. <laughs> I was. I came out of school and I joined Accenture. It was either that or go into investment banking. You know, I grew up uh, watching Family Ties and was yeah. emulating Alex, I think, a little bit <laughs> and realized, oh, no, I didn't want to move to New York. So, yeah, I joined Accenture. Uh, I'd always been a geek. Uh, I was, entered coding competitions in high school and stuff. And Accenture kind of married my ability to still be a geek and get me out there and travel and the like. Well, that's really interesting. So, so what types of stuff were you doing as a systems analyst at Accenture back in the early nineties? Uh, we went to their school for nine weeks or so and learned COBOL and JCL and Kicks. If you recall some Ooh. of that, oh, I know it was cutting edge at the oh. time. Yeah, so I came out and I was uh, proficient-ish in COBOL and immediately was put on a project with M M&M and M Mars to put in a new uh, supply chain system which was pretty amazing. You know, in the 90s, it was all about predicting, forecasting demand. And then how much should we produce? How many candy bars should we make in response to that demand? Uh, so my, my very first job there, my very first assignment was uh, with m Mars. That's interesting. So were you in a plant that was creating this or were you just in, in an office? Uh, no, it was, it was amazing. We were at the plant. We were in Hackettstown. Uh, all the candy you could eat, I gained 15 pounds or so. And it was critical actually to get out onto the factory floor. And we would walk mm. the factory and we would see, okay, this is the peanuts when they're just coated with powdered sugar. And now they receive their full coating of chocolate. Well, that's a whole step and that's work and right. process sort of inventory that you have to net out of the finished goods, you know, really helped us understand, okay, this is the way this works. And now this is how we forecast the demand on top of it and in turn forecast uh, the need for the components. So, yeah, we were so right that's there. super interesting. That fact that you were encouraged and now makes perfect sense to be out on the factory floor floor. Um, to understand each of those individual steps, you know, so much in IT and we see it a lot even today, especially in this cloud world where you're, you're so far away from the infrastructure is that, um, you know, it, it, it all just happens in, in a laptop in an office somewhere or now in our houses. Uh, and you've got this IT that is divorced from the pr process itself. And how can you innovate in that type of a scenario? You, you can't unless you, uh, Unless you understand what really goes on in the business. The Japanese have a term for it, uh, Genshi Genbutsu, 
which is go look, go see. <laughs> and it's, you have to get out Perfect there. You stuff. have to get out and see what's actually occurring. And that, that I consulted for Toyota later in my career and then worked for Nissan. And that was critical. It was part of it. I would imagine. Now, what, what's the tech that you're working with at the time? Obviously, you've mentioned the languages, but, you know, is, is it on mainframes that you're it doing was, stuff? Is, is- it was absolutely. It was mainframes and then uh, tape drives. And there were robots that would load the tapes in and out. And it was, we thought it was really fascinating. We'd go into the data center and watch the robot pull the tapes <laughs> in and out. And you had to get time. You had to uh, get time on yeah. the mainframe. You had to compile. If it didn't compile properly, then you hung your head in shame, you know, and you went back and then you resubmitted it. Uh, so there's a lot of desk work and desk checking before you went in. Uh, I, my daughter just took a, a class, uh, CompSci, in university, and I was looking over her shoulder, and I would have killed for one of those editors that she has now. You know, the editor, it helps her with syntax. It lays things out for her. Uh, we had to do it all sitting at our desk back in our day. Yeah. <laughs> back in the old days. Well, so much of this reminds me, my father, it was his whole life was was in IT. He, uh, he um, his whole career, in fact, back when you could do this sort of thing with a single company. So he was an IBMer for uh, for life, but came out of the Navy as an electrical engineer. And, and his first job was fixing the tape drives and the cooling systems that kept all of that stuff running on these big raised floors of just tape drives. That was it. Millions of dollars of investment there in those data centers. It was incredible. Yeah. And what can we can put all that on something the size of our finger now? It's, it's ridiculous. Well, okay. So um, you kind of kind of alluded to or talked about how Accenture took you into M&M Mars. You became a manager over there, but that got you, well, I guess like my father at the time, you guys were there at the same time working for IBM. What, what was that all about? It was uh, it was an incredible experience. So I came to IBM via PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, IBM purchased us to expand their overall services uh, business. And what was amazing is after they purchased PwC, where I was in supply chain consulting, so I continued to leverage uh, yeah. my, my knowledge of the factories and the systems there. Uh, what was amazing is when IBM purchased us, suddenly we had so many more resources. You know, not only did we have the system resources, but you had the global IBM network of companies out there. You had global IBM think tanks. You know, you, if your dad ever went up to Armonk, you know, they had a whole lab oh, yeah. that were just running and thinking big ideas that now we as consultants had access to. Uh, so right. it, was, it was an accelerator, definitely, for everyone in our business. Yeah, my father, um, so we were in we were in southeastern Pennsylvania, but then for most of my growing up years was in upstate New York. He worked in the, the Kingston plant for, mm-hmm. uh, for IBM and was a part of. Uh, several things, but the the 370 mainframe part of that deployment, as well as then worked on uh, OS2 and OS2 warp on the uh, deployment side of that, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. Predominant cool. operating system for a long time. Poor old warp didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So what was uh, so as you're you're there in IBM? What's how does the tech evolved uh, at that point? So you know we we've hit the late 90s. We're in the 2000s. You know, are you client server at this point? We um, are. We're transitioning off those mainframes. We're client server. You mentioned the 370. The AS400 was yeah. coming out and suddenly you could have functional, strong servers that you could easily put not even into a data center, but into a closet. And I think, mm-hmm. well, I know there's AS400s running still all over the oh, world. Oh, there's a ton of them. Business critical systems. Yeah. And AS400s are the workhorse and became the workhorse uh, there in the 2000s or so. Um, client server as well, which suddenly put loads on networks that people had never considered. You know, and we evolved off a token ring and up into Ethernet and, yep. whoa, what's going on? Whoa, my switching infrastructure is important too. You know, and things started to evolve and edge before we even knew what edge was, but edge and how you were delivering uh, signals became important and it never was before. You know, we use all these terms now and we think, oh, they're so new and they're so shiny, but you know, if we go and look back and we may not have used the term, but we were absolutely using the same type of attack, same type of tech, same methodologies back, you know, 20, 20 years ago now. We were, we were private cloud. We didn't even know what private cloud was. You know, but before private cloud was cool. That's exactly. We were private cloud before private cloud was cool. We were running in an owned data center that was hosted by a third party that we had access to that was only our equipment. That's that's private cloud. 
That's totally private so, client. And what's interesting is, uh, of course, you know, while we, we do this in the context of Rackspace, you know, if we look at Rackspace's history, you know, this is right when Rackspace starts, 1998, a couple of three, you know, three or four guys get together and think, you know, what would be really cool is what if we had a data center, but not just a data center, but some servers and smart people to kind of take an out of service layer on top of that. And, uh, and so really, it's just building on what you're talking about. It's a third party data center, but we've just added some smart people. And that was how the foundations of, how, of where Rackspace came from. It, it, it's really funny. Um, when I went to university, one of the founders of Rackspace uh, lived across the hall from me. And really? It, and it was one of those that Dirk. Um, and, oh, at wow. The time, and I didn't would, realize you went back that far. I, yeah. And we would host LAMP parties. And just do it for to play games on. And he and I would crawl under the desks in the dorm rooms and wire stuff together. Uh, I went off to Accenture and he said, ah, I'm going to build servers for a while. He was building servers out of his, uh, his college dorm room. Yeah. And obviously that ended up working out okay for him. It worked out okay for him. Yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. He and a, the, you know, the other, the other founders pulled it together and it became a bit of a thing. It did. It did. That's interesting. You don't, you know, I don't really learn something so foundational in one of these, these uh, interviews. That's super interesting. He was on the podcast last summer. We'll have to send you that episode. Oh, that'd be fun. It would really be fun to hear him. He's, he's doing some really neat stuff now. Um, and he tells a lot of those stories. Um, so what, what was your big takeaway from your IBM days? You know, what, what did you, what, what did you learn? How did that help form you into the technologist you are today? Yeah, so I, I probably two big takeaways, actually, Jeff. It's hard to distill it into one. Uh, right. One of them would be the access to that network, the access to the subject matter experts that were out there mm-hmm. taught me how important change management is. And I'm not talking technical change management. I'm talking organizational change management. Really, what I learned from that is system implementations don't fail because the tech doesn't work. We can always get the tech <laughs> to work. They fail because the business processes in the business doesn't adapt to whatever is going on. And they continue to try to do things the old way on their new systems. So that was huge for me. The second thing that I really learned was take a chance. You know, we had, we had the umbrella, we had the safety net of IBM and it taught right. me, okay, we can take a chance in a controlled manner. And I've leveraged that even as I've continued in my career, set up, set up time for experimentation, allow people to just do what they want to do because you get the best results sometimes as somebody has a passion project. And if you can give yeah. them the resources to, uh, to leverage that. Super interesting. So what you're saying is that people in process sort of matters. <laughs> Absolutely. They really do. And uh, my role at IBM evolved to I became the change management guy. Um, this is oh, back wow. on the John Cotter penguins, yep. you know, and my, my iceberg is melting and those sorts of things. And I would teach yep. classes at corporations on how important change management was. Again, this, the system itself, the supply chain side, eh, that's going to take care of itself. I was yep. involved with the stakeholders in our communication plan and our change plan and those sorts of things. Well, it's what I feel like I've said for years now, the tech is always the easiest part. It's everything else that's just so hard. It is, especially um, nowadays. Especially nowadays, because you can provision and deprovision and get the tech set up. You know, it used to take, Jeff, you know, back in the day, it would take six, eight, 12 weeks. I remember on our project plan to instantiate an environment. We can do it in six minutes now. Yeah. That's no longer right. even a barrier. It's more, what are we trying to change and why? Well, and doesn't that put even more focus on change management because the tech can move so quickly, because the foundation can shift underneath you so quickly, you know, the way you manage the people, the way you work together, your organizational management, you know, it just matters more now than it does than it ever Absolutely has. true. Absolutely true. We have somebody in our team right now at Wyndham whose job is basically communication. Really? You know, and she's responsible for talking about here's what we're doing and more importantly, why. Here's why right. we're doing it and taking everybody along on that journey. Well, uh, it's super interesting. I, I love the fact that you've got people dedicated to that. So, so what drew you then uh, as we continue to move through your career out of, out of working with IBM now off to, to tools, Black & Decker, you know, CIO and VP? Yes. So it was my first CIO gig. Um, I needed to get out of consulting because 
my wife wanted me to. <laughs> it was on the road too much. She wanted to see you again? Exactly. She said, you know, it's been great, but uh, and I know you love your job, but it'd be really nice if you could be at home. Uh, right. So I joined, uh, joined Black & Decker. I was able to leverage my supply chain experience, and Black & Decker was going through a transformation of their own. And they were implementing an entire set of systems. They were opening new factories over in China and outsourcing some of their business, you know, into China and into Mexico out of North America. So I was able to leverage my supply chain foundations. You know, so right. I had a foot firmly on the ground there while I evolved into that CIO role because your very first CIO role is tough. You know, you're learning what it means yeah. to manage a department, what it means to manage folks, how to mm -hmm. communicate your vision and everything else. But I was able, again, to anchor myself on my supply chain subject matter expertise and then right. leverage that up. Um, I had an incredible boss, you know, uh, Jim Caudell back at uh, Black & Decker and Nolan Archibald was the CEO at Black & Decker for 25 years. So, you know, there was just this culture that was so supportive and put systems first. You know, there's some companies yeah. where, oh, we, we're going to invest, wink, wink, nod, nod, and it's more of a cost center. Uh, this yeah. was, we're going, we're going to invest. You know, I could come to Jim with an idea and he'd say, yeah, let's try it. You know, we, we implemented Salesforce. I'm excited. We implemented Salesforce before Salesforce was even a thing. It was a small really? little CRM system. And we said, let's implement Salesforce for our sales teams who are out there talking to Home Depot and talking to Lowe's so we can better understand what those conversations were and what those takeaways were. And we were implementing it on Blackberries, you know, and we were the very first company actually that implemented Salesforce on a Blackberry. And we co-innovated and co-invested on that because the salespeople couldn't return to their desk. You know, they needed to have that right. mobile device. And that was the mobile yeah. tech that was available. And this is literally one of the first mobile techs of any use. You know, we had, we had laptops that we could haul around at, that, at this point. But truly being able to sit and have a conversation with a prospect or a customer and be able to look down at your palm on pilot or your, sure. your, 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 whatever the device is, and then be able to, you know, give data. Here's where your project is. Here's what the price is going to be. Here's, here's how quickly we can have, you know, uh, quant uh, stuff in stores. That, that was it exactly. And those were the questions they were asking and the questions that we were answering. And you're right. It was Palm Pilot and BlackBerry. We, we were yeah. compatible with two platforms at the time. <laughs> and the salespeople were thrilled because we bought everybody a BlackBerry. We made that investment, yeah. you know, $300 is what it cost back in the day. And we bought all 180 salespeople a BlackBerry and installed it uh, for them. So. That's amazing. Now, one of the things I was expecting as we went through this is that all of this, uh, all of this experience would hit this head at here at Wyndham, uh, especially as pandemic comes in, and you've got to, you know, throw a bunch of you know, build these innovation muscles. But but you've been figuring out ways and working with leadership to use technology as a forcing function, as a driver, as an additive and an accelerant to the business. You know, I think one of the things I'd really love to know is how did you establish that relationship with your leadership so that technology wasn't just a cost center, but was used truly as a, as an accelerant to the business? It's about trust. What it ultimately comes down to is do what you say you're going to do and start with a couple small wins. And once you've established that, you know, it can be something very, very basic. You know, when I joined Black & Decker, we didn't have reliable Wi-Fi. I said, okay, my first 90-day plan is I'm going to have reliable Wi-Fi in this building. Boom, we did it. Okay, Scott's- Little win. Little win, that's exactly. And then build on that and then say, okay, what's next? Oh, well, we need an accounts payable system. Great, let's do that. That's a little bit bigger. Boom, boom, boom. And as you establish that, and as you demonstrate the capabilities on the team, then you yeah. earn that trust with, with quote unquote, the business. You know, and then they start coming to you with, well, I have a problem. How do we fix it? And that's when you know you're there. You know, when they're coming to you as a trusted advisor and asking yeah. for your participation and engagement early on, uh, that's, that's victory. That is victory. The little wins, the little wins. You're putting you're putting drops in the bucket of trust with leadership that when they give you a nickel, you can turn it into a quarter of value 
uh, inside of the organization. So that then I guess at a point when you say, let's do something a little, a little bigger and a little more foundational. And now you're coming asking for a check to be written that maybe has a few more zeros before the decimal point. It's not such a shock. It, absolutely true. Uh, that first seven figure project, you know, that you're asking for, again, for us, yeah. it was a supply chain system. You've already established a series of wins, you know, uh, going yeah. back to that, go look, go see, my first 100 days at Black & Nicker, I drove down to Mexico, visited all three plants down there, had a takeaway at each plant and the general manager, and then came back and delivered on that takeaway within that 100 days. You know, right. Whatever he or she needed, I hear you. Okay, now I'm going to deliver it. Now I've got them in my back backyard, you know, and they're supporting me. And so now when it came time for that seven-figure supply chain project, okay, yeah. Osvaldo, He's already there. He's like, yeah, Scott, I trust you to do this. Yes, it's going to change my factory. It's going to change the way I operate, but I'm with you, brother. Yeah. You know, and that, that makes all the difference. You're not just some wunderkind who comes in and says, hey, I'm going to change the world. And here's the big, here's the big whoosh. No, I put on the coveralls, you know, literally put on the coveralls, walked the factory, was sat out there with them, worked the night shift, you know, with the folks so that you, yeah. you, uh, you leverage that up. Same thing at Wyndham. You know, the way you build that trust is you get behind the front desk. You get behind the front desk and you you watch somebody check you in. Start you checking start people in. That's it. That's it. Literally during, uh, we came off of an outage about two years ago. And one of the guys and I, we worked together. We got behind the front desk because they had a line and helped check people in. And that's it. And the franchisee still talks about that. You know, he'll, yeah. he still talks about these guys from corporate were there and they were helping reduce the line and improve customer service. Isn't that what it's about? Improve customer service. Well, what drew you then? It sounds like what you're doing at Black & Decker was super interesting, but off you go to Nissan for a little while. What was, it, what was that? It was that, super that interesting at Black & Decker. We were bought by Stanley. So mm. it was just a matter of uh, the way they ran their IT. They didn't have business unit CIOs. I literally yeah. submitted an org chart into the overall CIO and uh, VP of HR that didn't have my name on it. I said, you <laughs> I knew. I said, look, you, this isn't the way you operate. You operate more in a shared services function. Yeah. And I know. And I said, yep, you're right, Scott. <laughs> yeah, so I, Thanks for your service. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Otherwise, I'd still be at Black & Decker. Uh, Nissan, uh, I was drawn over to Nissan. You know, I had consulted when I was with IBM for Toyota for a little while and I've always been a car guy and yeah. Nissan was going, oh fun exactly so what a, what better candy role. bars cars all the fun stuff Tar tools tools oh yeah my garage is great I love your career yeah <laughs> it, it's a lot of fun so Nissan was going through uh, a transformation and they wanted to go through quote unquote an overall digital transformation and needed okay. help defining that. And I led strategy, I led IT strategy, uh, third party relationships and uh, their web, you know, their overall digital side there at yeah. Nissan. Uh, was there about a year and a half. What I discovered there <laughs> is it was actually being run out of Japan, which is fine. It's a Japanese company. Yeah. But the way we were going about transformation in North America versus the way they wanted to go about it in Japan were very, very different. And yeah, we ended up, yeah, you know, the people I worked with, all of my peers, um, we all ended up leaving Nissan because it was being driven centrally. So that was a, a pretty quick stop, but it was pretty amazing to really learn to operate things at scale. You know, Nissan's a 40 plus billion dollar company just in North America. So to right. learn, wow, this is an outsourcing agreement that doesn't have seven figures or eight figures. This has nine figures associated with its outsourcing agreement. We've got to get this right. Uh, so yeah. that was huge for me because I flexed new muscles there. And then I joined uh, into private equity, you know, talk about cool products, speakers, Worked for, oh. uh, exactly, Boston Acoustics, Denon, Morantz, turntables, speakers, oh. receivers. And I worked for my old boss, Great Black names. & Decker. So uh. it was perfect. So Jim, I mentioned Jim. You know, Jim yep. joined uh, Private Equity and he said, I'm getting the band back together. And I said, huh, well, my stuff at Nissan was faster than I thought, but I'd love to join the band. So it was the old yeah. CFO, it was the old VP of HR, the VP of Marketing, the old CEO. We were all together. and that's It really was us. everybody. Yeah, it was perfect. It was perfect. But before we get too much more into the, the private equity, I want you used a, a term about the Nissan stop, and that was going through digital transformation. Was that the term you were using at the time? This is 2010. Hmm. And I'm, I've, I've been doing this personal research into how far back does this term actually go and how long have we been destroying it? it fair. We weren't. We were calling it 
um, a transformation. We didn't okay. put digital in front of it, but it was an IT transformation or a supply chain transformation or a GL, a general ledger transformation. Yeah. We were getting more functional on it. We were not calling it a digital transformation. They're very, okay. very astute insight there, Jeff. Okay. It's a, I'm sensitive to the term because we started using it, what, about, uh, in far as I can figure, about seven or so years ago, six, seven years ago. That feels about really right. Figure. And it's uh, it's one of those terms that means different things to different people. And now it's yep. been so overused that it's almost meaningless. You know, it's well, like, here's the challenge I have with it, though, is it's been so overused in, a, in an environment where it really couldn't deliver on the promise of its definition. But I think now it finally can. I want to actually use the term now, but it, everybody rolls their eyes when I say it. I'm with you. And I think if you say, OK, we're going through digital transformation and then you quickly follow with here's what that means. This is what it means. I actually follow very quickly with digital disruption mm -hmm. um, because I think that's actually what's happening. Well said. Well said. Okay, so you drew me into private equity. What's going on in private equity? So were you the CIO to CIOs inside of the private equity? It, it was. I was a CIO, global CIO for Din and Marantz. Uh, we had manufacturing all over the world. Incredible role. Uh, it was a six year. I have a Denon receiver and speakers. Most people do. That's the thing is 45% market share. If you have a black box, chances are it's a Denon or a Marantz. Uh, incredible. Love role. the Denon. Love the denim. It was, it was, um, and they last forever. So once again, in manufacturing, using some supply chain, but what was really, really amazing about that role is it was one of the first times we could get data via IoT. And we were coining that term because your receiver, Jeff, connects into the internet. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it does. Exactly. We had suddenly, we had 32 million connected devices that we could collect data off of. And we realized light bulb went off. Oh my goodness. We're not doing anything with this data. We should. And Denon launched, you know, wireless speakers like a Sonos. We yeah. launched wireless speakers and we started collecting that data. And we were one of the first, I remember speaking on uh, data and people came up to me afterwards and they said, this is scary. I'm actually not going to use your product because I think you know too much about me and I have privacy concerns. And I'm like, I just happen to share the truth. This is already going on. Oh, yeah. yeah this is already yeah. out there. Yeah, because we could tell Jeff cranked his, uh, cranked his music at 1 a.m. He listened to this. You know, he turned it all the way up to 11. Right. <laughs> of course named, I did. Exactly. He named his speaker Living Room. That, that, that we could learn all these things about behavior and the way people were using our products. And then we could then feed that back into our product development and release new mm. products. So it was based on actual usage data. When I have to be one of the first companies using that, were you even calling it IOT at the time or we weren't, we're putting, we're putting that term on it. We were at the end of it, at the end of that six years, IOT had come out. So we were calling it IOT. We were just calling okay. them network connected devices that we were leveraging the data for. A, a great example is people were naming their speakers and we were seeing a lot of people name their speakers bathroom, believe really? it or not, or shower because people like to jam, yeah. you know, I get it. So then yeah. we fed that back into the product development organization and they created a waterproof speaker. Now yeah. you would have never known you would, I mean, how do you capture that kind of consumer use of your product? That's exactly, you right. don't. That's exactly right. And then we monetized as well. We monetized a lot of the data and we sold it to Spotify. It became one of our largest revenue streams, non-product. It was our largest non-product revenue stream was our monetization of the data and selling it to this new startup company at the time called Spotify. You know, Scott, so many companies in the in the consulting world talk about, hey, let us come in and, you know, do a data modernization project because I'm sure you've got data that you could monetize and sell. And then everybody stares at you blankly going like what? You've just given an amazing example of it. It, it was a lot of fun. It really was. And something else we did for the very first time is we had all this data. We then took it and made it as anonymous as possible. And then we crowdsourced innovations on it. Basically, we ran uh, with a third party, but we ran a contest and the winner of the contest received $10,000. Tell us really? something new about our data that we didn't know. And people would go in there and they mined it. And then they came back and it was some, uh, some gentleman from Romania. And he came back to us and he said, did you know that, you know, if somebody plays your speaker at a very loud, loud volume, they're very likely to buy another one if you market to them. 
you know, it, and it sounds fundamental, but feed yeah. that into our email marketing, feed that into our Salesforce engine, and suddenly, boom, uh, that ten thousand dollars paid for itself. You know, multiple times. Anyway, it was fun. yeah, it did. Absolutely, it did. Um, and then along comes this little uh, fran- hotel franchise business called Wyndham Hotels and Resorts, who drew you out of the cool speaker because I guess where you are in your life, you're ready to start doing more traveling because you only go to companies to work for who can contribute something to your life personally, apparently. And so off you go into into the hotel business. Absolutely. Uh, drawn in to, to be the CIO or did you rise into that once you were hired? So uh, yeah, I, I exited Denim Rance as part of, they call it in private equity, the strategic exit. You know, we sold, oh, yeah. which was what we're supposed to do. You know, supposed to come that's in the, the company. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then I was looking and I wanted to stay in New Jersey. Um, and Wyndham was, believe it or not, just right down the road. And the timing yeah. happened to work out and they waited for me um, because we had to go through that strategic exit. But yeah. They waited for me uh, because at the time I was the business unit CIO for Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. So Wyndham Corporation was actually three companies. It was a timeshare company, a European vacation rentals company, and the hotels company. And yeah. when I joined, they actually had me, uh, when I interviewed, they had me sign an NDA and they told me about their intention to continue to acquire brands in the Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. And they yeah. liked my private equity experience because we acquired and sold. Nine that's what you brands. do in private exactly. equity. That's what we acquire. That's what we did. So you acquire and integrate. Yep. And I remember saying, "I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know anything about hospitality." And Jeff, the business unit uh, CEO at the time, said, "Yeah, but you stayed at hotels probably more than anybody." I said, "Yes, I have." Mr. Consult, 15 years in consulting. That's exactly right. I've had uh, 1,800 nights in a Marriott, actually. So, <laughs> so, so I joined. Um, we joined, it was just a business unit at the time and they were going through and it was being labeled a digital transformation and they needed somebody okay. to lead that transformation. And what that meant for them was a couple things. It meant for us, we needed to get off of disparate platforms. We were running five different central reservation systems and consolidate that into one. So they needed somebody yeah. who had that scale, that vision and could lead that team in order to execute that. So we did uh, my first year there, we consolidated from five platforms into one. We consolidated from X number of web platforms into one. And that, once you're on a single platform, now you can innovate because you don't mm-hmm. have to innovate five times. You innovate once and then you get to apply it at that, t- at that time to 18 brands. We had 18 brands. You get to apply it to 18 brands. Yeah. Now, in, in my reading about Wyndham, was it 2018 that uh, you mentioned this three company thing you were hired into um, that the hotel and resort part was, was, was pulled out of the the timeshare business. It was, we spun off. So we spun off and uh, listed ourselves as a new uh, public company. So literally bringing it NYSE, the whole nine yards, because you know, life wasn't busy enough. We know. No, no, you had to take a company public. That's exactly. We have to take it public and we have to pull out of our shared infrastructure and our shared services that we had with yeah. Wyndham Corporate and establish it on our own. And that's when we started our Rackspace relationship because we needed very, very quickly to get out of shared and owned data centers into something that could be standalone. And something quickly and, and have the staff to help manage it and that's all exactly those right. sorts of things. I tell you, we have acquired many a company that way who, hey, we got 90 days. Can you help? That was it. Uh, from the time they said go until the time uh, we rang the proverbial bell was nine months, which sounds like a long time, but considering it's, you know, it's we, seconds. All, it was seconds, we needed a new email system. We needed ERP system. We needed our everything security all pulled yeah. out and established and stood up on our own. Now, did you use that time as a time to transform or was your focus more on, okay, let's just get out and get stable in a new, in something that looks the same? Or did you actually go from, you know, was this part of the great consolidation as well? It was a combination. It was a combination. If it could fit into the timeline, I imagine it as a, as a triangle. So imagine a right triangle in a perfect world, you're going to go from one leg on that triangle up the hypotenuse. And you're going to transform if you can. If you can't, you're just going to go on the bottom of that triangle and basically lift and shift. So we tried to transform wherever we could. So we were on, you know, 
a, a different incident management system. We went to a cloud incident management system. We were on yeah. a different CRM. We went to Salesforce. You know, we're, we tried to transform wherever we could. And where we couldn't, yeah. then that became, quote unquote, tech debt that we needed to execute to take us from that point on the triangle at the bottom up to the top that we've been executing on since. All right. So, so you've got this, this storied history of looking for tech, how tech can wrap around whatever business you're in and the individual lives of individuals who are providing a service or building a product and find a way to do it better, faster, cheaper, make their lives better. And so then along comes this opportunity, we'll call it back in, in February, March of 2020. And we'll, you know, we'll call it the pandemic. And at that point, you're now listed on the NYC stock, the, the stock exchange. Um, travel stops, effectively. Your stock loses half its value. Um, and you've got the all these franchisees. And by the way, you know, Wyndham, of course, uh, Hotels and Resorts has nine thousand franchises. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in my research, you, you, you've got nine thousand you know, and, and a lot of these, you know, if you if stayed in these different locations in these these hotels, you know, these tend to be family businesses. Um, so you've got these 9,000 families effectively out there who are now going, what's next? So Scott Strickland puts on his thinking cap. You take your roadmap and I think effectively tear it up uh, as far as what you had committed to last year. How did you approach, one, sustaining um, your organization, your people, and the business. But then two, Scott Strickland never sits still. How did you take the challenges of the day? How did you wrap your team around that? What did you do to help um, your business move forward? So it was hard. It was probably, well, was the hardest part of my career. You know, at that point, I'd been in the the business for almost yeah. 30 years, and it was the hardest thing we ever had to do back in March and April of 2020. Obviously, we had to respond quickly in terms of adjusting our cost structure, you know, which unfortunately meant that we we had to leave, let some people go. Now, I'm yeah. pleased to say that everyone we let go has since been rehired because IT is really brilliant. I love that. It, it was awesome. And they were all rehired within six months as well, which was great oh. back into other industries mm-hmm. or something else. So that was great. To your point, though, yeah, the roadmap that we had, we said that no longer is what we should be investing in. And what was amazing about Wyndham is they said, yes, these are going to be tough times, but we're going to pull on, we pulled on a revolver, you know, we we pulled a a billion dollars, actually, boom, we're going to have that as cash reserves. We're going to use those cash reserves to support our franchisees. We're going to cut fees to our franchisees. Franchisees, don't worry about it. Don't pay us for 120 days maintain yourselves. We're going to stay afloat, you know, while we, while we all work through this together. Um, what was incredible about Wyndham is yes, we had to make some of those adjustments. Yes. We pulled on a revolver and everything, but we continued to invest in it. We just changed it. Uh, instead of doing an internal project, you know, focused on the GL, for example, we said, well, this contactless thing is going to be really important. Let's double. People are going to care about that. We're going to care. That's exactly. Let's double down on our mobile app. And we did. And we continued to invest uh, millions of dollars into our mobile app and released a new mobile app. We continued to mm-hmm. invest in salesforce.com in terms of a way to communicate out with our franchisees as well. You know, and we, we right. brought some of these innovations out into the marketplace uh, when other people weren't. And it's really, really positioned us well. It really has at the end of it. So I love that story because what I don't hear is, okay, times got tough. We're going to tighten our belt and stop spending. I mean, isn't that certain death? It would be. What you did was you did tighten your belt, but you continued to spend wisely in the areas that, that would make, that would, that would make the big difference to carry you through, um, through that, through the situation. Exactly right. And that would quickly respond to some of the franchisees needs. You know, so for example, uh, within IT at Wyndham, it's typical IT, you know, responsible for ERP, responsible for all the reservation systems, but we're also responsible for our guest facing and franchisee facing contact centers. So Jeff, if you call up to make a reservation, you're actually talking to somebody in my organization. But what that gives us is an incredible view into what was going on in guest behavior. And what we yeah. were hearing oh, from yeah. guests is, I want to check into a room that nobody stayed in 
for 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. Because Is that ever on the roadmap radar? Never on the roadmap. Never had been on the roadmap, but we heard it. And then we were very quickly able to respond. And because we were on these single platforms, able to implement it. And suddenly it's live for 6,000 hotels in North America. Bang. Mm. Yeah. So now, Jeff, you check in. Yeah, room 14 over here has not been stayed in for two days. No problem, sir. Perfect. What and, and what a value add to be able to to give to the customer and to advertise to the customers. Hey, we can we can guarantee this room has been, uh, of course, cleaned. Uh, how it's been cleaned and how long it's been since somebody has set foot in there. Exactly right. And in parallel to that, we release something uh, a digital checklist for our housekeepers because our housekeepers. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're a housekeeper, you've been cleaning the same hotel, you know, in, in Nebraska, for example, 60 rooms for 20 years. You've been doing it the same way. Now, suddenly we're, we're reminding you, okay, you need to wipe the doorknobs. You need to do these sorts of things. So we put together digital checklists for the housekeepers that they could use on their mobile device. Everyone has a mobile device and yeah. they could check. Yep, but, but I've done all of these things. Great. And we could certify, quote unquote, that that room had been sanitized based on the new COVID protocols. Well, and what a different environment to get to innovate in when you know there's a certain base level, I've call it tech fluency and tech capability. In other words, go back to Black and Decker. You had to go buy Palm Pilots and, and Blackberries uh, just because nobody had a, a mobile device that that had any sort of functionality or even had one. Um, but now you, you know, even at the housekeeper level of, you know, income and strata, you know, they've at least got some level of, of Android or iPhone. Type it, it's incredible to think how the tech has evolved. That's exactly right. And uh, you're assuming, for example, as well, that Wi-Fi is going to be there in the hotel. That's that's as important as hot water. You just know it's going to be. Whereas back again, back in the day, Wi-Fi? No, it wasn't even a consideration. So exactly right, Jeff. Uh, all right. So, um, you know, you mentioned that for these 9,000 plus different franchisees, you're handling the contact center. You're handling all the systems that handle reservations. Uh, I would think that that transaction level uh, is larger than most. When you think about, you know, I may be coming in, you know, on my on my phone connected to your web systems while I have somebody on the phone, while I'm validating the fact that what it says on my phone is actually there before I go walk through the front door. Give, give me a scale of the amount of transactions that your, your team looks at. Absolutely. So 9,000 hotels, each one of them has at least 70 rooms on average. So think of that as, you know, we're in the 800 to nine. 100,000 rooms. Each one of those rooms can be priced differently based on different rate plans. You know, you have a AAA rate plan, you have a corporate rate plan, you have whatever, then take that across, you know, a year. Think of all of those points and now take all of that data and push it out to Expedia. Now take it and push it to booking.com. Now make sure that it's on our websites. Total number of transactions. There are some days that we run, we joke, but it's true. We run more transactions than Twitter pushing up That's and down through our systems. Just just pause for a moment to let that sink in. I mean, we all know the behemoth and the amount of traffic that something like Twitter as a global system is, is managing. And the fact that on some days you guys are, are driving more of that. And you've got to be consistent. I mean, there is no, we all know what it's like. The phone said that, div- that that room should be available or that product should be in the store and I should be able to walk in and pick it up. And when it's not there, that is a, the worst customer experience. That's exactly so right. You, you use the example of you're sitting in the parking lot. So you're sitting in the parking lot, you're on our mobile app and you book the room, which is a fairly common use case, actually, because a lot of our hotels, you know, take a day's in and just off the freeway. So you pull right. over for the night and you maybe do price comparison. You book your room and then you walk into the front desk and you expect them to have your reservation there at the front desk. Yeah. And three or four minutes have passed by the time you've locked, you've gotten out, locked your door and walked across. That's the exactly right. And it needs to have dropped and be ready for them and pinged. And it does. And it does consistently. <laughs> or your phone rings. <laughs> if it doesn't, I hear about it. That's exactly right. No, it, it, it works. It absolutely works. And it's again, because we're on these single platforms and every one of our business critical platforms are quote unquote yeah. cloud-based. And what's that yeah. mean? You know, and people say, oh, we're cloud. We're cloud because we don't have to worry about the tech. We let people mm. who are very, very good about the tech worry about the tech. That's not our differentiator. Our differentiator yeah. is what we do with that tech. Our differentiator is quickly writing that report that's going to show us the room, you know, hasn't been stayed in for 24 hours. We don't care what operating system it's on. 
No. So think about the difference from, from where you were in, in writing code for COBOL back in 91 for, you know, for Eminem Mars and, and where your teams are today. Cause obviously you're not writing the code as much these days. You have people for that, but you're, you know, steering that ship. But, um, so, so you, you make it through 2020 and here we are in 2021. Uh, obviously innovation is a hallmark of, of who you are and what you look for and demand in your teams. You know, in our last you know, few minutes here, how are you establishing a culture of innovation, um, even as we're still dealing with, but coming out of mm-hmm. a pandemic type of, of a world? So one of the biggest things you have to do is reward your innovators. Mm-hmm. Accept the ideas. So folks have good ideas. Um, so listen to them. Fail fast. You know, test them out. I was talking about, you know, even back at Black and Decker, even at IBM, you get into that lab sort of concept. So accept some of the ideas from your folks, test them, and then see what, what might have legs. We ran something, we called it the Wyndham 500, kind of like a Daytona 500, yeah. with the entire department and said, uh, come to us with ideas like a shark tank. So it was my directs who were all being reported out to by these different teams. Mm-hmm. Almost three years ago, one of the big innovations that came out of that was, oh, we should invest in a small company called Zoom <laughs> <laughs> to change the way we, we run our conference rooms. And yeah. we did. And we were one of the first big enterprise companies actually to sign Zoom at the time. And thank right. goodness. You know, that we did because when when that fateful March the 13th of 2020 occurred, we were able to pivot quickly. And then on March 16th, that Monday, boom, we were operating. We had our very first global Zoom call, but it worked because we didn't care about the tech. We didn't have to scale up. We didn't have to worry about that. We had seen, we hadn't seen the pandemic coming, no, but we had seen the need and our team had said, I want to invest in Zoom and we let them do so. Amazing. And you've also structured, um, you know, your your workday around it as well and carved time out for people to be able to have time to focus. We, we absolutely have. So Wyndham during the pandemic implemented something called uh, Wellness Days and Wellness mm-hmm. Fridays. And I encourage my team on those Wellness Fridays and Friday afternoons, um, take that time for yourself doesn't mean take take the time for yourself uh you know and catch up on emails it's read that blog you know that you're a little bit behind on or listen to something or stay abreast of what's going on or have a fun vendor meeting Mm. vendors sometimes have some of the best ideas and they're looking for labs and playgrounds as well and if you know let's make that mutual investment together in something that could be really sexy and be the next the next thing so yeah friday afternoons are my my time and i like to think for my team as well uh for us to get connected with what's going on in the industry or even better sometimes jeff outside of the industry some of our biggest ideas don't need to come from hospitality they can come from somewhere else right exactly now I think in closing, you've got a new uh, member on your team. And this just goes to the fact that well, we, we've looked at this long 20-something year career, more than that maybe now, I guess, at this point of you and IT. And what we've learned is Scott Strickland doesn't sit still. You don't take, you take the win, but that doesn't mean you sit down. Uh, you've, you, you pulled the company and IT part of that through through 2020. But you have hired a new person whose job it is to reimagine what is this hotel experience, or if, maybe, if not to reimagine it, to question it. Kind of tell us a little bit about that. We have. Uh, what a great position this is. We actually just posted it. Uh, it is hospitality on property hospitality technology. And it's really about reimagining what is that guest journey. Um, yeah. I follow a blogger. Uh, he's an NYU prof called Scott Galloway. And he said, run the 1980s test which is if this process was being executed the same way in the 80s, it is probably ripe for disruption and innovation. And he's right. Now, we are evolving in hospitality tech. You know, you're able now to check in on your mobile device. You're able to use it for digital room key. Okay, great. But what's next? And that's what this person's going to figure out. Do I want to use my mobile device for texting while I'm on site? Do I want it to receive uh, services? Do I want to cast up to the TV that's in the room? You know, yes, 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 yes. If so, then what's that mean for an infrastructure? What's that mean for services? What's that mean for our mobile app roadmap? 
So yeah, it's super exciting. It's a fun position uh, to have. And the fact- So the position is posted so people can apply now? They can apply now. And the fact that we're investing, you know, Wyndham said this is important enough, even as we're coming out of the pandemic, we have to be very careful about, you know, where we're investing costs and everything. Yeah, this be very careful. is a position that we are willing to invest in at this juncture. Well, again, you know, it, it just because things are rough, it doesn't mean don't spend. It means spend judiciously. Invest in the future and in the things that are that are growing. Uh, besides, when, when someone is using more and more of this tech, we go back to your your Denon days. And what can you what else can you learn about the guest experience that you can then use to drive use that data to drive an even better experience? There is gold in that data somewhere. Jeff, we just need to, uh, we're aggregating it and we're going to mine it. Absolutely. Scott, thanks so much for being a part of the program today. Fascinating um, your, your your story all the way through, but really fascinating what you guys are doing at Wyndham and how you're, you're you know, you, you care, first of all, how you're investing in your franchisees and how you're reinventing what it means to have that, that, that uh, hospitality experience. No, thank you for having me, Jeff. We have an incredible team here at Wyndham and it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's our pleasure to help get to serve you. So, all right, Scott, have a great day. Peace. Thank you. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. What an amazing story that we just heard there as we listen to the progression of Scott Strickland's career as he went from, you know, early COBOL programmer all the way up to running the IT show over there at Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. Incredibly impressive. I'd encourage you, and I don't know if I've ever said this before, maybe go back and listen to this one. There is a lot to learn. Grab your pen, grab your paper, and take a few notes. There is, uh, there's gold in this one. But it's not the only one. You know, we put one of these out every single week. So I'll encourage you, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Cloud Talk. And maybe even give us, if you're enjoying this, one of those five-star reviews and share it with a friend. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, you may be aware, I am doing some live events on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, I think YouTube as well, but most of the people over on LinkedIn, you feel just follow the Rackspace account over on LinkedIn. You'll see notes as to every time that we're going online. Usually it's Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, but they're live. They're great conversations. They're like little cloud talks, but very, very uns scripted. So hopefully you can join us there. Now, huge thank you to uh, Dell Technologies for their continued support of Cloud Talk. All right, folks, I hope you have an amazing week. I can't wait to bring you next week's episode. It's going to be amazing. And look for us on LinkedIn Live. Talk to you soon. This is Jeff Deverter for Cloud Talk. <laughs>